0: Welcome to Spin It. We're here uncovering the true stories behind every guest's successes and failures. This podcast is real and raw. We're stripping away the fluff and the perfectly manicured bios to get a glimpse into what it takes to be truly successful. What is your measurement of success? I'm your host, Stephanie Malik. I'm a global business consultant, coach, and crisis expert. So to say I have heard it all before is an understatement. I've seen people flip their world upside down with the slightest error in judgment, only to spin it into their most crucial and defining moment of success. On Spin It Podcast, I'm chatting with high achieving executives, athletes, and entrepreneurs to understand how they have turned their failures into fuel to help them grow themselves and their businesses. I want my guests inspiring stories of truth and authenticity to engage and impact you. We're here giving you real stories behind the headlines and to give you a glimpse of the messy reality that is success. Whether it's a hidden addiction, business scandal, an abusive family, a debilitating illness, or simply just navigating life's hardest days, we want you to learn from our mistakes. Life is all in how you spin it. Today, I'll be speaking to Ross Gerber, who's the president and CEO of Gerber Kawasaki Incorporated. He's an SEC registered investment advisor who is passionate about providing education to the younger generation in investing and money management. Ross has been interested in investing from a young age when he was given stock in Apple and Disney for his 13th birthday. For college, Ross attended one of the best business schools in America, where he also received a second concentration in classical music studies. At the age of 27, Ross became the youngest million dollar branch manager in Sun America's history. He was named a top financial and blockchain influencer by Investopedia and Richtopia. On our show today, Ross and I dive deep into the pressures of being in charge of so much at a young age, the challenges of starting a business right after the 2008 crash, and how he's now focusing on the next generation throughout his work at Gerber Kawasaki. Hi, Ross. How are you? Welcome to the show.
1: Hey, thanks for having me. I'm good. I'm good.
0: Great. So let's get right into it. I wanted to chat with you immediately about, for your 13th birthday, did you actually ask for stock?
1: No, I didn't ask <laughs> for it. It was given to me, I, you know, which was somewhat disappointing at first because I was like, this isn't actually a real present. And they were like, no, you'll be happy about this in the future. And I said, that's much less exciting after studying for my bar mitzvah all this time that now I got to wait. So I'm old to enjoy this present. But because of that, I was like, I should figure out what this is. And it happened to be Apple stock and Disney and IBM stock. And I think in total, it was like, I had like $100 of Apple and like $50 of Disney. It was small investments, but it got me to learn about investing. And, and I realized it was a way better thing than actually working a real job pretty soon after. And I was like, I got I to gotta figure out how to do this.
0: <laughs> That's incredible. So, so, like when you got, so when you got the stock... <laughs> I have an 11 year old. And so I can't imagine handing him that say to- he would have been so bummed out. Tell me what kind of walk me through the conversation. How did it happen? And what did you say?
1: Well, it's, it's not a conversation. I mean, it, it was like, it's kind of like a wedding, you know, like you don't like people have their idea of what they want for a wedding. And then you get money from some people and then you get gifts from some people. And quite frankly, most of the gifts you, you have a register. So you you kind of just tell people like, I I want towels, and and people like order you towels. So Bar Mitzvah was kind of similar to that. You know, you get all kinds of gifts, so you do get regular gifts too, but you get also money or stock. And I think it's a wonderful tradition in a lot of ways in weddings or major events, quinceera, whatever you want to say, to give gifts of stock or money, but I prefer people giving gifts of stock to children or young people for these major life events because it does prepare you for your future and it does force you to educate yourself uh, in something that I think is crucially important to your future. So it's actually a great gift for a kid or a wedding or, or any gift is gifting stock and, and, and also to charity, which I do a lot of. So it's, it's a, so yeah, in a way you can start a whole person's career with a gift of you know, a couple shares of the Apple or whatever.
0: So any 13-year-old who gets stock for his birthday must have grown up in a pretty unique household. Did you grow up in a house that valued and talked about finances or was this really kind of all on your own?
1: Oh, no, no, no. Like my family, I come from a family of investors in the sense of like my my great-grandfather was an investor in the stock market and came to America and 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 really suffered through the Great Depression and and then started a diner and and made a lot of money in the restaurant business uh, during World War II because of where the naval base was put on the East Coast was happened to be right by my great grandfather's diner. So it worked out pretty well. And then he took his money and invested. It. And then the 50s came around and he did very well in the stock market in the 50s. So when he died, you know, my mother, my aunt and some other relatives had, and my, my grandfather had inve- in, inherited some of this money. Um, And it spread between a lot of family members. It was like, wow, you know, like this guy ended up supporting like a lot of his family who needed the money from just being an investor. And, And so my grandfather was an investor. And I thought, I mean, he wasn't rich, you know, like my grandfather was like middle class, I would say, but he was retired. And so like they had a small apartment in Marina del Rey, but he didn't work and he played golf. And I was like, and he wasn't that old. And I was like, wow, you know, grandpa's got a much better deal than my dad, who work 12 hours a day as a dentist, you know, and I was like, and still does. And I was like, had no plans of being a dentist, that's for sure. And so, so then my grandfather taught me about how stocks work and how dividends work. And I was like, why would anybody not do this? They send you money. That was what fascinated me was dividends because my grandfather would get checks in the mail. It doesn't work that way anymore. You can't kind of set it up that way. Now everything's electronic. You get money just deposited automatically and all that. But the idea that you could own Apple, and then over Christmas, when everybody buys iPhones, that you would get your portion of the profit of that paid to you in cash, seemed like a great idea to me. And so the fact that my grandfather just got money sent to him for doing nothing, why would you not invest? Why would you not invest? And so I wanted to learn how to do this because I did not want to work like my dad. And I still don't want to work like my dad, (laughs) you know, not because it's a bad thing. It's just, it's hard being a dentist 12 hours a day, five. Absolutely. And flexibility and freedom and and all that other stuff. He's not retired, you know, and I'm like, that's not what I want to do. You know, I want to have freedom. Like I want to be able to do whatever I want to do. And so stock was a way to do that. And I figured that out at a young age and thank God.
0: And so, Russ, tell me about your family. Like, tell me about, like, the actual household. Did you know what middle class was? Did you know what upper class was? Did you have no. any? You didn't know any of that.
1: I grew up in the most f- up, crazy world you can imagine. I mean, it was the 80s in Los Angeles. I went to private school. I was in West L.A. I can't even tell the stories because there was a couple of movies, like this movie Less Than Zero that came out that was kind of about... Our scene, and that movie was fairly accurate actually of the way I grew up, and like most people haven't seen that movie it, it was on the other day on like you know some streamer or something like and 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 it's so it was a cross between that and dazed and confused was kind of like how I grew up, you know, so it was a cross between like less than zero and dazed and confused was basically my childhood, so I saw very extreme things i was around enormous wealth. So I actually thought I was middle class, but I'm, I wasn't. Because people had like massive mansions and like huge houses. I mean, like we would do crazy things and people's parents were celebrities, people's parents were successful business people. And so like normal life, I didn't know till I went to college. And when I went to college, I went to University of Pennsylvania in the East Coast. And I moved into my little dorm room in West Philadelphia in the late 80s during a recession. And real life came to me like a huge truck running over my head. And then I realized, like, boy, I had no idea like what the world was really like. And, and then it was not so good, I realized.
0: So you went to one of the best business schools in the country, and you got a second concentration in classical music studies and you have your own band. Is this correct?
1: Yeah. yeah, yeah. Although my band because of COVID is, is kind of over now and Aww. it's still, well, it's like, where do I play? Am I, it's like, and, and then like playing in studio with musicians is really hard right now. I have a music company, actually. I'm involved with a couple of things in the music industry still. So that's going really well because we built an online music business called No Cap Shows and Cocoon Malibu, two separate live streaming music companies. That's actually doing really well, unfortunately, because we're still not really seeing live shows in any large amount. So being a band or being a musician right now is a super hard time.
0: Was there ever a dream to become a famous musician or not be in finance?
1: No, my dream was never to be in finance, but it wasn't to be a famous musician because I play jazz and blues. So when you play, and I study jazz. So like, I knew I was never going to be a popular artist. Like, actually, that's why I was into investing, because I wanted to be able to play the music I liked, and that I loved. I really loved the music business. So I thought I was going to go into the music business. And then I realized that was like a horrible business when I was 23. And I got into the music business. And I got immediately out because it was when Napster was big. And I was trying to explain to people that they were going to get killed. And the tech boom was just starting. And I was working at Atlantic Records, actually, and these people were trying to sell CDs. And I'm like, the world is changing, you know, and I saw the tech boom coming. And then I realized it wasn't going to happen in the music industry and that I should get out of that and get into the investment business and invest in technology. And that was a great decision. (laughs) That, that, That was a good decision.
0: That's amazing. So I want to talk about Sun America. You started at Sun America Securities after graduating college. And at the age of 27 years old, you were the youngest million dollar branch manager in Sun America history. How did you have the confidence to be in charge of so many things at such a young
1: age? (laughs) Well, I, I always train this to act as if, you know, you can't be something if you don't know what you want to be. So like, I don't think the president of the United States has like practiced this, you know what I mean? Like, and certainly by the performance of the last 10 presidents, they certainly needed more, more practice. You know, So I think when you look at most jobs or most even performance of anything, you're usually not prepared for where you go if you're ambitious. And so part of ambition is accepting that lack of experience, but being willing to try really hard. I think confidence is built through work ethic in my mind. Like the only thing, somebody posted this today and I reposted it and I thought it was just genius. It was like, these are the things you can control in business. And it was like work ethic, attitude, you know, and I'm like, those two things are the most important things. So I, as a young person at Penn learned this lesson, very hard way. Penn was very hard. It was not an easy school. I struggled for a period of time there, like struggled. It was like I was partying all the time. Nobody else was. They were studying all the time. I was playing in my band. I was probably doing stuff that you probably shouldn't do. And then it was like, oh, and I, and I go to one of the hardest schools in the country, too. And I'm supposed to pass. You know, Elon Musk is sitting three things over in my freaking engineering class. And no wonder why I got a D. So I had to get through this. And it was very challenging. And, and I think what you learn is stepping up. Like you have to step up if you're going to be successful. You're going to be given an opportunity and you step up. And what I learned at Penn is that I'm going to outwork people, that I can outwork people because I got through that. So I had a better attitude because I'm a positive person and I knew I could outwork them. So when I got promoted, I got those opportunities that came my way. I took them because I knew at least I could learn and outwork anybody else that was there. So at the time I was like, better me than the other guy.
0: Absolutely. So, you know, it's funny that you say that because when I was reading through your story, um, Ross, there's a couple of things that, that really hit me hard. So first of all, your age. So I was 26. I'm so years- young. You are. You're so young and you look like a movie star. So I, I was thinking about this. You were doing this at 27 years old. So at 26 years old, I held a directorship from a global public company, an international position that I truly had no business having. And, you know, promoted because of attrition, promoted because of my work ethic. I was the first one there. I was the last one to leave. There was nothing that was never not my job. If you could see me sweeping floors, it didn't really matter to me. I was just there as a team player to learn and to grow my leadership skills. But when I look back at it now, so, you know, this is my third company. I have to admit, I'm thankful that there wasn't a lot of social media and that there wasn't a lot of, you know, smartphones wouldn't be
1: magnified. (laughs) Yes. Yes.
0: Yes. Um, and it wasn't, I mean, you know, again, like you, you just made, you made a great point. You're like, you keep moving and you keep stepping up and you keep, you know, Richard Branson said around when I was probably 27 or 28 years old, he said, say yes to every single opportunity and figure out the back end later, but you say yes to every opportunity.
1: And I was like, yay, I'm winning. Yeah, but don't you think you're, you're being overly critical of yourself because you, you have the much more intelligent, experienced version of you now. So you're looking at the old version of you, which will never look as good as the current version of you because you have so much more experience now. You you're, know? Ex-
0: that's exactly right. But you know, but then again, Rust, your point again. I didn't really do that badly. Considering, no, I'm sure you did great. That's the point. Yeah, considering all the things that I didn't have, I was just really willing to have a great attitude and have impact and learn and be a sponge. And when I was looking at your story through Sun America and I was looking at, I mean, just all of the things, you looking over 15 branches and you, you know, having over 200 advisors and, and all of this stuff before you were 30.
1: It was painful though. Like, don't, I don't want anybody to think that that was fun or easy. Yes. A lot of that was very painful. And so I think I'm a good business person today from those experiences. But I think kind of what you're saying, you take these responsibilities when you're young and then you're throwing things at you, like the financial crisis, for example, or dot com. You know, like I was I was 30 when 9-11 hit, you know, it was the anniversary, it was the 20th anniversary. I was supposed to go to work in the Twin Towers in Century City that day in that morning. And I was watching the markets when the planes hit. And. Like I had to make that call to like shut down the office. I was like, nobody going to work, shut it down. Like, I don't know what the hell is going to happen next, but planes are hitting buildings all over the place and we got to make sure our people are safe. And and I think I just lost like a bunch of people I know, you know, like it sucked. And so like, these are hard things to deal with when you're 30 years old, running a 250 person company that eventually that has to deal with all kinds of nightmares, you know? So part of that is horrendously difficult. But then like today, when like Corona hit, I was like, no f-ing problem, everybody. Here's what we're going to do. This is what we have to do. And so when crisis is hit, I'm actually the person you want.
0: Yes. And so that's kind of what I want to go a little deeper on. So that's you, you um, amazing segue. So when you were obviously very, very young and you were really showing up and you had a great attitude, you know, one of the things that was really hard for me was people just taking me seriously. And I was I was young. I was ninety percent of the time the only female in the room.
1: I was right. the least. Well, it's educated. harder if you're a woman, right? Because it's yeah. like you're like this young woman too, exactly. right? And so like all the guys are like, who the hell is she? Right. Exactly. So I, I give you serious props because when you're a guy, at least you have that, you know?
0: Well, not only that, not only that, I had gone to a state school, a state college. I'm in the center of of Cal and Stanford. Okay. So these are, these are all the people that they're turning out. And so it was really, really hard. And then you, just you, I mean, so eloquently you said, you know, I mean, people didn't take me seriously. Um, I had to work for everything that, that I did and and there, and it was lonely. It was, it was very And a lot lonely. of people don't
1: want to work for a younger person. Right. You know, like right. everybody and, was older than me, you know.
0: And that's exactly right. So when I got this position as a director, the youngest person was 11 years older than me and had been at the company for seven years.
1: Yeah, I'm sure was thrilled when right. you walked.
0: Amazing, through. you know, huge support, really big support. So I really think though, looking back on it, doing this and not being taken seriously and then having to constantly prove yourself, how did you convince the naysayers that were all around you, just kind of like either not taking you seriously or being negative? How did you deal with that?
1: Well, I have a no, no tolerance policy to negativity. Nobody will be successful with negative people around them write it down. I don't care who it is. It could be your brother. Doesn't matter. Stop talking to him. You cannot succeed in life with negativity around you. It could be your, your, your wife or a husband. You got to move on. It's so hard to succeed with everybody supporting you. Okay? With everybody. If everybody supported me, it would still be hard. And you still have to be a little lucky because I do believe in luck too. But to have negative people bringing you down, especially like I took over an office and then eventually the company and like I walked in, it was like 35 people in this office and they're like, oh, here comes the a-hole who's going to now probably like change everything and make us work, which was true. And what I do in these situations is usually there's somebody that comes to you as an ally because they're smart enough to realize that you're the new boss or you're the new person in charge and they want to be on your good side. So there's usually a few people that will like come to you and be like, hey, let me give you the lowdown," because basically I get it and I want to be on your good side, (laughs) you know. So you embrace your allies quickly, okay, and reward them. And then you've got all these people who are kind of waiting to see what happens. And then you've got the negative naysayers. So the first thing you do is you fire the negative naysayers and you promote the people who support you. Okay, so people know very quickly what you're willing to deal with and not deal with. And negativity has got to be the first thing you end, because you might not know me yet, but give me a chance. But if you're going to come in and just with the negative attitude, I don't want to work with you. End of story.
0: Okay, so let, let's stay here for just one second. Again, I'm completely going off script, but I think this is really important for our listeners. Okay, so you come in and you're there and you're young, but you have zero negative. You're like, it's not happening no matter what. Jump on the boat or no, get the out. a
1: group of people who were negative and they were fired.
0: Yeah. So how long did it take you legitimately to go, you're out, you're out, you're out? The first day. Oh, okay. You beat me. I had at least a week.
1: Gosh. No, I mean, you go in, you do the meeting and you can tell right away. And then you meet with the people and they start giving you this garbage and you say, I think it's best you move on. You know, things aren't going to be this way here.
0: And what was the feedback?
1: The feedback is they leave. And then what happens is then everybody realizes that you're not going to deal with this stuff. And then all the people who want to help you are kind of stoked because they actually didn't like those people anyways. Right? Because those are the people bringing everybody down.
0: Yeah. So your team gets a lot more cohesive real fast.
1: Yes. Because is it really a team if they're working against you? No. What you're doing is you're soliciting your team. You're saying, who wants to play on my team? And the people who go, yeah, I'll play on your team. Then you say, Okay. Here you go. Like I, I'll never forget this. I had one guy. I move into this office. I take over this office. Thirty-five people. It was like I was twenty-seven at the time. I'd just been promoted to manage this office, and I was the youngest person. And this one guy came up to me. He's still a good friend of mine today, actually. And even though we don't even work together anymore, but like he said, "Listen, there's not enough desks in this space right here, and I'm willing to give up my desk to make it easier for you, and I'll move over to this section of the office because it'll just make it easier for everybody." And I was like, "Really?" That's really nice that you've even thought about how to make my life easier for me. And this was a guy, he got it, that if he was going to move up and if he was going to, like things weren't working where they were and that's why the changes were made. And, and I had been one of the top people in the company and I was coming in to fix it. And he was like, I'm going to stick with this guy. This guy's making people money. I'm going to figure this out. Even though he's 27, whatever, who cares? And, and he ended up doing well. And, and he did well because he did well on the team not because he kissed anybody's butt. So I want to separate out the kissing butt thing from being a team player thing. I did not want people coming in and praising my, you know, kissing the ring. That's not what I'm talking about. What I'm talking about is you're soliciting a team and people coming in and say, I want to be on your team. I I get what's happening here. How can I help? So that's what I'm talking about. Not the people who just fluff you up. And, and, you know, I, and
0: I'm glad you pointed that out because it's praise is very different and kissing butt is very, very different than jumping on and going, what knowledge do I need totally. to make this move forward? And this, how can I like move help forward?
1: The, the mission? Yeah. You know, like, like exactly. I get what's happening here. Mission. I want to help the mission. That's what they're saying. Not like, here's the new boss. Can I get you some coffee? And you're like, no.
0: You're like, that would be great too, though. But we'll get back yeah, to that. Yeah, I
1: actually worry about those people.
0: Yeah, exactly. Exactly. So the financial crisis of 2008 hit everyone extremely hard. Yet again, unwavering, no negativity. You didn't let it get you down. In fact, in fact, you started a new company and you wanted to develop a new type of investment firm, one with the goal of using online advertising and social media. So in 2010, you and your business partner, Daniello Kawasaki, started Gerber Kawasaki Incorporated how were you able to start an investment firm in the midst of the aftermaths of the financial crisis?
1: (laughs) Well, all the other ones were gone. So, you know. No competition. Right. That was part of the thinking, right? Um, So the financial crisis was horrible. So like, I don't want anybody to think like that I got through that with some sort of grace or or beauty. It was, I don't know how I can compare it because I don't want to be insensitive (laughs) to some real bad horrors that are real in the world. But like, I I just, I can't compare it to anything I've ever seen in my, my life. The destruction of people's lives, like their families, their homes. I, I have memories of people like being forced out of their homes and like had to move and like evicted and foreclosed, like left and right. Fortunately, I only lost like, I had three houses at the time as investments. I only lost one of them to foreclosure and the other one. Fortunately, I was able to hold on and sell eventually, but like, but I lost like, all my money. And my company was pretty much done. And, and 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 this is actually a true story. And then in December of 08, when things were really bad, then my house caught on fire. So one night right before Christmas, my house caught on fire. And I got a call from my neighbor, like, your house is on fire and the fire trucks are there. And I was like, I'm done. Like, this can't be real. And I, I drove across town. And sure enough, there's the whole thing, the hooks and ladders and the hoses and and I was like, I'm, I'm done. Like, I, I, I'm like, I'm really just done. And my mom called and was like, I'll help you out, you know, whatever. And I was like, mom, I think I have like 50 grand left or something, but, but like, you know, I didn't have debts, you know, I didn't have like big debts, thank God or any of that. But like, but the, but the firemen f- saved my house. So it was like a, this weird turning point of epiphany happened that day. Like the firemen saved my house and, and like, I'm, I love fire people and appreciate them Enormously in in their bravery, which you can't imagine, but they saved my house and they did it in a really great way. And so that was like the first piece of good news. And then I met my wife that week. Oh, <laughs> it's like it's the weirdest crap ever. And my niece I'm like, was like, And born. how do you
0: and how do you how do you lead with that? Hi, how are you? You're really beautiful. And my house burned down.
1: <laughs> actually, that's what worked. Um, <laughs> that's well, she didn't believe me. Like, well, no, we had gone on our first date. Then my house burned down, and and I was actually with another girl oh, when good. my house burned down and then I had just met her. And, and then I, we were supposed to go out on a second date and then my house burned down. And, um, and then like we went, I didn't want to flake, you know, So we go out on our second date and she's like, you're kind of a mess. You know, like you don't remember any of the things we talked to. Like my wife is not dumb. You know, she's, she's got it together. So she immediately like prowled right into all the obvious signs of distress I was dealing with. I was like, well, besides the fact I lost all my money, my house caught on fire and I'm at AIG, which happens to be about to go bankrupt because they had bought Sun America. But the good news is my house burned down and some of it still left. And she was just like, so this is your excuse why you don't remember anything we talked about. And I was like, yeah, that's my excuse. She's like, I don't believe you. And which is typical of my wife. And and I was like, all right, let's go back like, to my house. I like her already. <laughs> I, I know, I do too. I <laughs> Let's go back to my house. You know, like, you don't believe me? Let's go back. So we go back to my house and it was true. And uh, it worked. That worked.
0: This week's Spin It shout out goes to J Rock Mill. Love this podcast. So informative and love the stories. Definitely on my weekly podcast rotation. Thank you so much, J Rock Mill. Look forward to hearing more feedback. Do you want to generate fifty dollars to $75,000 of revenue you never even knew was there? It's time to scale your business to a new level with Scale OS, led by me, Stephanie Malik. I can help you get your business to seven figures because here at SME, we've done it before, in fact, numerous times. When you sign up for Scale OS, I will work with you and nine other business owners to give you a personalized roadmap to success. I will help you learn how to tap into other avenues of revenue with sustainable methodologies that will allow you to scale your business. And after this program is done, you will have a renewed passion and drive for what you do. Find out more by going to stephaniemalek.com forward slash scale OS. You talk about the really hard stuff, which I love. Um, 2008 was a nightmare. It was, it was, I mean, Ross... I personally lost friends who took their lives because th- that was the only way they could for their life insurance, um, for like things like that to set their families up. It was tremendous. I don't know if you remember Siebel Systems before they were bought by Oracle. Okay, so like the people that were jumping off the building. I mean, it was it was a traumatic, traumatic time.
1: You know, it was interesting because we were talking about the difference between Corona and the financial crisis because the Corona crisis was extremely dramatic in a different way than the financial crisis. And I was saying the financial crisis was so different because the government didn't really protect people like they did during Corona and people lost their homes. Millions of people lost everything. And we just didn't see that with Corona because the government sent everybody money, loans, this, that. And so people actually ended up on whole better off financially post-Corona than they did beginning Corona. And it's kind of crazy that that I I don't know if it's good or bad. I think it's good for society, even though we're horribly in debt, that we protected people because the financial crisis was horrible for people. I completely agree. Irrelevant of the health part of Corona. You know.
0: Right. Absolutely. Absolutely. Speaking
1: from the financials.
0: I mean, and just and you know, the other things that you didn't point out, which which I knew you were alluding to, was just the overall protection. You couldn't you couldn't evict anybody. You there was moratoriums on homes. Like there was there was financial it was a blanket. There was a financial wrap around so many people.
1: There's still so much stuff you can do if you want help. And like I I and I honestly I think it's great because I'm in the financial planning business. So we have thousands of clients and I see like how people live and like we we don't work with only rich people. We work with everybody. So like I see all the different stratas of society from people just getting started with a little bit of money and people who are very, very wealthy. And so we could see how this was affecting people in LA in particular, very, very hard because we're so levered to tourism and live entertainment. So it was like really hard for people in LA. So the fact that the government did all this despite the enormous deficits was, I think, great and, and, and a first in American history compared to the financial crisis, which then took years to get out of. So when we started our firm, that was sort of the thinking, which was your question, was like now that we're here at the bottom and the firms are gone, like maybe it's time for a new firm because all these old brands are done and people and then this was when Facebook started getting big. And so we were big on Facebook when nobody did Facebook. And because of financial crisis, there were no compliance people to stop us because they all got fired. So we had like this two-year window that nobody said anything. And I was posting on Facebook and I was the first financial advisor to do this. And we got like 30,000 fans pretty quickly on Facebook. And it was like, this works, like, wow. And then uh, AIG got taken over by the government and they hired some very smart people. It was like kind of crazy because I guess these people were do-gooders that were trying to help the government turn around AIG. And this woman came in. She's like, I'm head of compliance. I see what you're doing. And you're not supposed to do this. And I was like, yeah, I was kind of waiting for this call eventually. you know." And she was like, but guess what? FINRA has a pilot program. I love what you're doing. We want to submit you guys to FINRA to be the people who help make the rules. And I was like, that's great. I'm happy to do this. So, we helped make the rules in the financial industry for Facebook. And I was like, we can use the internet and a website to leverage who we are to get out to a, a whole country or world. We don't need, I used to have 15 offices all over the country. Like, I don't need all these offices. We're going to have one office. We're going to use laptops and we're going to use social media and the traditional media to get our message out and we'll be completely mobile. And that was the idea then. And it, I guess now in hindsight, it was pretty foresightful. But at the time, it seemed obvious to me as a way to, leverage what was actually happening in a big way, you know? So
0: looking at your resume and looking at your bio, it looks like this. It just looks like everything Ross touches turns to gold.
1: <laughs> well, that's not always true. Um, it's more like that. Like, it's more like a real stock chart, but it has been up. And I think there, there and, and there's a reason for that. There's a reason for that. Please tell me. So there's two things I believe very, very important things, I believe. Number one, if you're not learning something, then you're getting dumber. And so your brain is like a muscle. And if you only teach it certain things, then that's where it stops. And then what happens is over time, because you stop learning, it actually degrades. So if you don't use it, you lose it. That's the way your body works. That's the way things work in our systems, our human system. And so if you want to stay in great shape, you need to use your body. You know, if you want to keep your mind in great shape, you got to use your mind. So I do certain things to challenge myself, because I also think if you only study the things you like and know, then it's the same thing. You get muscle memory for only a few things. You have great biceps, but you don't have good pecs, right? Because all you do is bicep curls. You ever see those people in the gym? you're like, dude, your arms are amazing. But like, the but you look like a corn dog. Yeah, it's like the rest of you is all messed up. You know, you should do legs sometime. So one of the things I like to do is I'll study a topic I know nothing about. Now, partially for investing, I get stuck into this anyways. So like we'll get like I'm really into battery technology now and it's super geeky and it's not my thing like healthcare, Like I don't like studying engineering, for example, but that's why I do it. Because it forces me to learn something I'm not naturally good at, I don't necessarily like, and I'm learning a lot. Like, I'm learning so much about how, like, it's amazing the way a battery really works. Like, you know, you know, like, even though I went to great schools, like, we actually never took a battery apart, ever. You know, and I'm like, maybe we should have taught that somewhere. You know, I learned chemistry, but we didn't do batteries. I don't remember doing batteries. I got a A in chemistry. I love chemistry. So I'm starting to learn this stuff again. And I'm like, wow, this is great. And now I go up to Tesla and we got AI day and I'm like reading this stuff. Like Elon's like off the charts, you know, neural net stuff. So like, I'll try to learn this stuff and, and it's not my thing. And I, I, you know, maybe I'll never be an expert at it, but like it forces your brain to work. I also study history. You know, I, I love history. And so I'll take periods of time And decide that I don't know enough about it. And I'll just start like, or countries. And I'll start reading everything about it. Like I I decided I didn't know enough about Russian history. So I get this book about Stalin. You know, it's like this huge book. Start studying Russian history. Oh, it's like, oh my God, I didn't know any of this stuff. This is horrendous. You know, like Russian history is horrible. It's a horrible history. Oh my God. If you want to read the history of hardship, how about the Russian history, right? So like, I'll read these things that maybe have no relevance to my work just because I really just force myself to learn new things. So that's number one. If you want your career to keep going forward, you can't just keep doing the same things. You can't just keep learning the same things. You gotta challenge yourself and you gotta keep challenging yourself, just like physical fitness, to be smarter. And so, you know, you have to make time to read and and learn and and sacrifice some of the Netflix shows or screwing around or whatever you're doing to sit down and read for an hour, you know? Super beneficial and and lots of, uh, I think, upside for your career. And and so there's career reading and there's industry-related reading and then there's everything else. And I think people give up to everything else. And that's a mistake.
0: I, I think it's fascinating how much we're aligned on this, Ross. Because when people come in to interview for our global firm, I always want to know 80 percent of what they love, like what ignites them, what what drives them, what are they like, what do they love so much, and what are they passionate about, and how can they make an impact and a difference, and how can it be noticed, and how can they feel it. But then I want to also know the 20 percent that they have zero desire to be in, that they they cannot like, for example, finance or product development. Yeah, it's or, like kind of what
1: you're not good at.
0: Exactly. And then I stick them there for 20 to 25% because you learn during disruption. So, you and know, how they handle it. That's exactly right. So that's the very first thing is, wait, I thought I was applying for this. And we're like, absolutely. And this is your job too. Isn't this an amazing opportunity? And they're like, eh, <laughs> you know, but it's awesome. So talk to me about soft skills.
1: Well, I was going to say that the second thing, Besides just like the whole learning element of it is what you mentioned earlier is your comfort zone. So if you want to move up in your career constantly, you're constantly leaving your comfort zone. You have to be very, very comfortable with discomfort to keep having your career move forward. Cause what I realized in my life is like, people get to a certain level where they're comfortable, where they make us. it's usually based around income. Like if I make 150 grand a year, I'll be happy. Or if I make a hundred grand a year, I'll be happy. Or 60 grand a year for some people, or some people's 250. And so like they get to these levels and then it's like, you know, you know, I'm happy here. And they wanna just maintain their job here because they don't wanna like invest more time and effort to move up. They're happy, they get their vacation time or whatever. And and it's sort of like all of a sudden your career just sort of like stagnates. But then what happens is you're really going down. So if you're not going up, you're really going down because everybody else is going up. And so what happens is you stagnate here and you're like happy and five years go by. And then all of a sudden you're looking around, and everybody else is past you. and And then you're kind of like nervous about your job for good reason. So if you're not growing, you're shrinking. And I think you know, a lot of people get comfy way early in their careers, and it's a huge mistake. Discomfort means you're doing something right.
0: Absolutely. And and so do you teach that? Do you teach? yeah oh, absolutely. Like, okay. I teach
1: my kids this. If you're not nervous, you're not trying. Okay? So, like, I actually am happy when I feel nervous doing stuff because I'm, like, I'm, you know, I'm, like, pushing myself. You know what I mean? Like, oh, I'm going to try this, you know? And, and And I just think, like, people... For good reason, don't want to be discomfort, but that discomfort is how you grow, and you shouldn't be scared of it. Fear, see, I say this too, fear serves so little purpose in modern society. It just does. We have these primal fears that are based off living in the jungles when we were, you know, five million years ago as animals, and we still let those affect us, even though our chances of being eaten by an animal are very low but yet it it affects our behavior in modern society so we are driven very much by fear in our society of things that really aren't fear you should be fearful
0: of agreed so talk to me about soft skills so whenever you are teaching somebody or you're showing somebody how to invest or you're bringing somebody into your your company Do you talk to them at all about soft skills? Do you talk to them about, you know, their self-awareness, how they self-actualize? Do you talk to them about EQ at all? Like what part of soft skills or EQ is in Gerber Kawasaki?
1: So that's usually in our hiring process more than training. So we want to hire people because EQ is kind of, you're born with it a lot. You know, I, I talk about this a lot because I work with engineers who have very little EQ, a lot of them and high I- IQs, you know, and and I say this about Elon a lot too, because sometimes, you know, super high IQ people have very low EQs, and it hurts them a lot. So, you know, we need people with good both IQ and EQ, because we work with people. So I think soft skills is, you know, I think interviewing people is super challenging, especially in the COVID era with zoom and all this kind of stuff. So like, We look for certain types of people to begin with that are most likely to have these kind of skills that work best with clients, like being positive, for example, or being talkative or entertaining, you know, like... I say this all the time to people like we're really in the entertainment business with everything we do. If you serve a customer, it doesn't matter what your product or service is. It's how that person interacts with your product and service that determines the sale in a lot of cases. So we're all kind of in the entertainment business one way or another. And it's kind of what I teach people. And that's more so than trying to to identify the EQ skills or whatever. It's like if this person has the right basic skill set to have the right EQ, then the training is... How do we deliver the messages correctly? So we look for certain types of people that have those inherent skill sets, and that's why a lot of times we don't hire people out of finance schools. We don't hire people out of Wharton, for example, and we don't hire people a lot of times out of many of the schools that you would think. Some of the business schools we hire out of, but most schools downplay EQ for IQ, even though EQ is more important in the workplace. And so we actually have a, a, a really big set of advisors from certain schools in California that might surprise people, but actually in hindsight are really good with EQ. So I think it's really in your hiring process you want to try to identify those people before they're in your organization because it's really hard to train.
0: What's the biggest financial mistake you've ever made?
1: Well, it depends how much you learn. The mistake is when you do it again. Okay. So I've made a lot of mistakes once, a lot of them, and all of them, you know, had sort of different lessons that I learned from those mistakes. But the issue is, is you make that mistake again. That's dumb. So when I think about like what I've lost the most money on wasn't necessarily my biggest mistake. You see what I'm saying? So like some of my biggest mistakes weren't so drastic per se in the result. They were just really dumb mistake. So I would argue the biggest mistake you can make is putting all your eggs in one basket, you know, where a mistake that you make can wipe you out. That's the biggest mistake you can make. So I learned that lesson in the financial crisis, because I had too much real estate. And I had, I'm a stock guy. So to get me to invest in the real estate market was pretty hard. But one of my very good friends and clients as a very successful real estate person who had a track record of just killing it for the previous five years and, and, and is still killing it today. It was just bad luck. And of course, I get in and the deal was supposed to be done in 0- 07, so it would have been perfect. But then the city, there was like some issue with the power and it ended up taking a whole extra year to finish the house, which wiped us out. So instead of having the house come out in the best time ever, it came out in the worst time ever. And it was a year difference. And I lost 100%. So that was my worst loss that I ever took in my life was 100%. And I've never done that in the stock market. Never even close. But I did it in the real estate market. But I learned two lessons there that I think were crucial. One was I didn't ruin the relationship with the person who lost all my money. Because it wasn't their fault. It wasn't negligent. And I was really unhappy about it because I would never lost all my money. And then it's like the financial crisis and I'm getting capital calls. So I'm supposed to put money in. You know, and it was a tense time, but I realized that jeopardizing the relationship with somebody I cared about a lot, who was very successful, who helped me a lot, just because I lost 100 grand would be stupid. And that the 100 grand I'll get back at some point in the future, but it's more important to maintain the relationship with this person, which ended up being 100% true. And this person's still a great influence in my life. And I've made well more than that 100 grand through that relationship over time. So I learned a very important lesson on my 100% loss. And also, I hate real estate. <laughs> that's, that's
0: <hard laughs> and you're like, and? And,
1: <laughs> and real estate sucks, by the way. <laughs> you know, stocks are way easier. Stick to what you're good at.
0: So Ross, Gerber and Kawasaki is now one of the leaders in fintech investing and a leader in providing investment advice for the younger generation. This, for me, is so critical. Um, I have a 26-year-old, a 25-year-old, and a 20-year-old, and uh, an 11-year-old. So I really, I think it's important because, because there is a generational gap. Okay. So like my oldest one, she's all about Robinhood Hood and Acorn and all of these different investing apps. So talk to me about why is it important for, for you to focus on the next generation of investors?
1: Well, I was one of them. That's kind of why I'm biased to it. So when I was 23, I got into the business, but I was an investor and, and I, I, so you can't get rich in five years, you know, it's like impossible. So well, it's not impossible, but you have to be lucky. I don't like using luck as a major factor to plan my future. So the best time to start investing is when you get your first job. Ideally, maybe your parents help you out with bar mitzvah or bat mitzvah or something, but, but maybe you're not. So you get your first job and you start your 401k and you start saving a hundred bucks a month or whatever you can save. but you invest your money, buy some Bitcoin, whatever, you invest your money. Learning good habits Saving and investing your money when you're young changes your whole life. But once you're like 42 and you haven't been saving money and you're married now and you have a couple of kids and you have some debt, and you're like coming to me because now you're like, I want to get my house in order and I want to, you know, like retire when I'm 65 and whatever. I'm like, dude, your chances are very low because you lost 15 or 20 years of saving and investing that you can't ever get back. So if you're going to be successful as an investor, the sooner you start, the better. The sooner you start, the better. And so I wanted to build a firm that helped people. Okay, that, that's the idea of our company. It's not to make rich people richer. So I would say the vast majority of investment firms are set up to make the rich richer. Then there's a group of investment firms that serve the public, but don't help the public. So Vanguard, you can buy it mutual fund from them, but God forbid you want help, they're horrible. And so there's plenty of people that will let you buy and sell whatever you want, but they don't help you. Okay. Or they provide computer help, which really isn't help. And then there's the Robin Hoods, which are really trying to just take your money. They're gambling apps like DraftKings, Robin Hood, you know, that I kind of put Robin Hood with DraftKings down. So if you play playing Robin Hood, you're going to lose. And learning to invest on another platform like Public is a great online platform and they have a lot of investment tools for young people and great content that they're putting out to educate people. So my whole thing is if you're going to be wealthy, we get you at 25, we get you started saving and investing. When you're 35 and you buy your first house and you're having your kids, then we're here to help you set up the rest of your plan, your life insurance, help you buy the house, make sure you have the right mortgage. Make sure you have 529 plans for your kids' educations. And then when you're 45, we're really focusing now on your retirement, paying for your kids' college, you know. So, like, if I start working with you when you're 25, you're going to be wealthy by the time you're 45. You're going to be a great client. You're going to be a great client. Now, I'm on 28 years of the business, so I think long term. When I started, I was 23, okay? So the clients I had when I was 23 are still my clients today, Twenty-eight years I've had clients. I've never had a client die. I'm knocking on wood. My oldest client's 98 now. She's 98. Actually, I, that's one of my closes. If you become a client of mine, your chance of dying have gone to zero. There you go. I mean that right there should be. I, can I? Can you send me a T-shirt that says that? <laughs> I have like, T-shirts, but they're not. They don't say that. <laughs> so when you think about the long term, this woman started investing. She was 70 when I started and and she was like worried about her retirement and didn't have a ton of resource and she's still retired today thanks a lot to me but like her investments have done really well 28 years she's been a client you know what i mean and if you look at the stock market the last 28 years it's been great but we've had some really tough times in those 28 years so that's where we help you a lot when the tough times happen we're here for you, you know, keep you in the game. And over time, you're going to build wealth. So we have a get invested wealth building program, then you graduate to our wealth management program when you have about 250,000 in assets. And that's when we start building the rest of your financial plan and tax planning and all that starts to come into play. And then we have our high net worth division once you have 2 million or above. And that's for the people who are getting closer to retirement or have higher assets. We work with a lot of entrepreneurial type people, tech you know, industry people, a lot of Tesla employees, you know, we're kind of known for our Tesla investment. And so like, there are a lot of young people with money too. And that those are the people we can impact greatly in setting up their entire future and so on and so forth. So it's a very good time to invest for people today. It has been for the last, you know, three or four years, despite Corona bear market and and 2018 for that matter. So my firm is like, We have 8,000 clients. We get new clients every day. And how do we help as many people, whether if you're getting started, middle-aged, or old, we've got a solution for you. But we know that if we want to have a great business in 20 years, we're going to sign up kids today.
0: So what's the number one mistake right now that young investors or young people are making? Gambling,
1: gambling, gambling, gambling. The apps or in person? Just in general, but they don't gamble in person. They gamble on apps, So I own those apps. So thank you. So when you lose betting on sports, I own those apps. Thank you. When you go and you play the Robin Hood game, you lose. You're making other people rich. Gambling is not a way to get rich. If you're betting, you're not going to get rich. I own the house. That's how you get rich. You own the house. It's not that hard. People wonder... Why would you not own a casino? Like, you're crazy not to own a casino. It's the easiest business in the world. Why? People aren't good at betting. They're just not good at it. And they're never going to be good at it. And it's very simple reason why. Emotions. So humans typically are four times worse when they think and bet than if they just randomly bet. Yes. That's the craziest thing.
0: I mean, it's funny because 20% of our crisis clients, 20% of them come from the whale hosts who say, you probably should reach out, Steph. It's probably a good time to have a conversation. Ross, what is the biggest obstacle you've faced thus far that you've been able to turn into an opportunity?
1: Financial crisis. That was a huge obstacle. I It didn't feel like an opportunity. It, it felt like I had no choice, you know. Um, we made it into an opportunity because we saw the, A, we saw the destruction of the name brand financial firms, the Merrill Lynch's, AIG's, Citigroup's, whatever, like those brands mean nothing to young people today. Okay. So when you talk to a 25 or 35 year old today and you say, what do you think of JP Morgan or Wells Fargo? They're like, I've never even heard of this stuff happen. They're using Square. They're using PayPal. They're using Venmo. They'll bank on their phone. They don't care. Those brands died. So we were like, let's create a new brand. Now, at the time before the financial crisis, creating a new brand was stupid. We it, like we operated under AIG financial advisors at the time because it was like a AAA rated Dow stock. You know, like everybody knew AIG. So it was like a huge advantage when I see a client, I'd be like, ah, I'm part of AIG. And they were like, oh, that's great. We trust you now. You know, it was like, yeah. Big, it's it's, big, it's, it's a
0: credential. It's it's a yeah, big like stamp of approval for company.
1: sure. And, and then when that all, like we kind of felt like they like almost like murdered us with their greed. And everybody in the country, there was like this thing called Occupy Wall Street where everybody like hated all the big banks. And it was like all these brands were just like completely tarnished and they were like changing names, you know, like they changed our name twice, you know, to try to hide it. We're not AIG financial advisors. We're Sage Point now. And I was like, why don't you just pick anything, you know, like starry eyed financial, you know, it was like we were AIG, you know, I'm like, if you're going to pick Sage Point, I might as well start my own firm. You know, it's like, so we, we were just like, there's new brands that are going to be created from the financial crisis and we should be one of them. So we, we were able to take a time, as I described earlier, that was a disaster for me. And we did wait a year or two from that before we started the company because we just couldn't until that happened just because of all the fires we were dealing with. But it was the greatest challenge of my life, like as far as like emotionally and mentally and like financially. And then it ended up boring the two greatest things of my life, my family and my company. So I'll tell you this piece of advice as we get closer to the end here. There's a saying, it's always darkest before the dawn. And it's so true. And if you, and if you can just hang on, there's so much to this. I think about this all the time. Like when you're about to give up on something, if you can just hang on a little longer, it's like the whole thing just opens up and we just give up so easy and and we get challenged and we kind of like, and it's not. Like you, or I'm like better than you, or it's not that we all have these challenges. But the difference between, I think, people who really are successful or not is when you dig deep and you hang on. And that hope, you see this in like movies, like in war movies sometimes, where like everybody's surrounded and there's like no hope they're gonna survive. And the guys keep fighting and somehow they get out of it. But if they would have just like given up, they would all die. And so I think that's really, really important. If you're going to go down, go down fighting. But hold on and go down fighting, you know? But when you give up, you're done.
0: Ross, thank you so much. This has been so informative. I'm so excited for our listeners to hear. Where can people find out more about you and your company?
1: So GerberKawasaki.com. You can follow me on Twitter, at Gerber Kawasaki. You know, our website is probably the best place. Um, You can Google me, Ross Gerber. Tons of stuff comes up, uh, whether it be our TV appearances, uh, podcasts, whatever. Follow us on YouTube. So we're all over the place, actually. So if you just uh, go into Google or whatever, you'll find me.
0: Thank you so much, Ross, for coming by. I really appreciate spending time with you.
1: Yeah, thanks for having me. This was great. Absolutely.
0: Thanks for listening to this episode of Spin It. If you enjoyed the show today, then rate us five stars on Apple Podcast. To be featured on our weekly shout-out, write us a review sharing why you love our show. Subscribe on Apple, Spotify, Google, or wherever you're listening so you never miss an episode again. If you want to learn more, follow me on LinkedIn, Twitter, or Instagram at Stephanie Malik. That's Stephanie with a Y. S T E P H Y N I E. M-A-L-I-K or visit my website, stephaniemalek.com. I'll see you all next week for another episode of Spin It. Enjoy this sneak peek of what's up next. When you start a company, you're all things. You do everything. You jump in. You learn. You ask advice. You've built great relationships. You're constantly pinging people and going, what about this? What about this? What about this? But then you get to a point where you said the most important thing is truly identifying your weaknesses and not doing that anymore. How do you vet that out? So when you're starting and you get there and you're actually starting to make money now and you're starting to develop a team, like you said, you guys are at 70, you guys are going to hit 20 million. How do you vet those things out to where you're like, yeah, that's a weakness. I don't want to do it anymore. What happens there?
1: Well, I think it's a lot of self-reflection. I don't think people reflect enough, right? Um, I know what I'm good at. I know what I'm not good at. And and it's like you look at the things that are taking up the time of your day. Usually the things you're not good at are taking up the most time because you're not doing them very efficiently. So I think taking the time to reflect versus being, you know, don't be so busy being busy. Right? You got to take time to stop and reflect and say, was that a good use of my time? Was that a good use of my talent?